The pandemic has opened nurses' eyes to seek out new careers in nursing. We always get more questions about what other opportunities there are in nursing other than working at the bedside. Both of us have our master's degrees and it has afforded us career advancement, flexibility of schedules, and work-life balance. Going back to school is always an option. And Samuel Merritt University has been educating nurses for over 100 years. They're consistently ranked top in the U.S. for diversity and highest paid graduates. In order to help nurses advance their education during these crazy times, they are offering over a dozen different types of easily obtainable scholarships, starting at $10,000 for any nurse who enrolls in the spring 2022 semester in either their online MSN FMP or DNP FMP programs. So visit them at smumsn.com. Again, that is smumsn.com. Hello, is this thing on? Do you think they can hear us? Nah, let's say it again. Hi, and welcome to the Gritty Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion related to health and healthcare. My name is Amy. And my name is Sarah. And we are your podcast hosts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, iHeartRadio, Amazon, or any other podcast listening platform, don't forget to subscribe so you can get updates to when we have our latest episodes. Also, don't forget to rate and review us. And if you like what you're hearing and you love our advocacy work, don't forget to go to www.grittynurse.com and click on the donate button. As little as $1 or $2 a month for a total of $12 a year, will help us with our monthly podcast costs such as website hosting, our hosting platform, audio equipment, and the time and energy it takes us to put out good quality episodes. We thank you and we appreciate you. Hi and welcome everyone. We have a great episode. I'm going to try to give you some more energy because this week has been somewhat draining. Sarah knows not, mm-hmm. not airing mm-hmm. dirty laundry today, but it has just been wild. So how about we jump into it? Sarah, what are we talking about today? We're going to be talking about something that's been bugging us for a while. And when I say we're talking about R&R, I do not mean rest and relaxation. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, recruitment and retention. And I know that, you know, these words get circled around a lot. But really, we're talking about losing nurses left, right and center and nurses that want to get into the profession. They're coming across a lot of barriers and bureaucracy, which is really not helping the situation. So we wanted to um, share some stories and take a deeper dive into that and just talk about other things that we've been seeing popping up in the media lately. Yeah, I think that'll be a a good take on some of the things that we've been seeing and just kind of talking about, you know, the issues with even getting into academia and getting into programs like nursing or even or even medicine or social work or any of those those programs right now. It's actually really difficult. And one of the things that I saw in terms of the difficulty, and I guess this was sprung on by the pandemic, is there's a lot of cheating going on, which really sucks because it's increasing the averages. So, you know, you know, that, that great student who who probably got a good A in their, in their academic year there, unfortunately there has been throughout the pandemic, lots of cheating at the undergraduate level, um, not just at the undergraduate level, but at the high school level. And it's, it's causing a little bit of issue because 
people who might be applying to nursing programs or medicine programs, if the general basic average is like 90, 95%, then it's some steep competition for people out there. Yeah. And I don't know what the average was when you got into nursing school, but it It wasn't 95. (laughs) A nurse right now, if it was 95%, I think it was something like 80 or 85%. So even, and even back then that was considered higher than most other degrees. So I think that like the bar is just going higher and higher and we're not addressing the issue, which is the fact that people are interested in being nurses and we're putting up all these barriers. You know, there's barriers to getting into school. Once you get into school, we're having issues now with finding clinical placements. We're having all of these issues with nurses that graduate and then, you know, less than five years into their career, they're leaving for whatever reason. And I actually came across this article in the CBC not too long ago, a woman named Abby, uh, and she spent all of high school focused on one thing, which is getting into nursing school. And uh, when she graduated this past spring, she had a 94% average, which to me is like, you're basically a shoo-in to get into nursing school. But she actually applied to Xavier University in Nova Scotia and didn't get in. And, Mm. you know, it's kind of sad because in Nova Scotia, there's a desperate need for nurses. And actually, this past summer, um, they hit a vacancy rate of 20%. It just doesn't make sense to me. And I think that the article goes on to say that the hang up for nurses right now is the clinical placements. And I think that's something worth talking about because we've talked a lot about how nurses have had to do virtual clinical placements and how that's not great. But when the pandemic is over, I worry that a lot of these organizations that said they weren't taking students on aren't going to take the same number back on. And it's something that affects everyone. So as an organization, you feel like, okay, I don't want to put anybody at risk because of the pandemic. But then at the same time, you're struggling to hire nurses. And it's because we can't graduate enough nurses with that experience to be able to function as nurses that we need. No, I, I agree with you, Sarah. And I am not saying by any means that this this lovely lady in this article has cheated, but I am pointing out a fact that cheating mm-hmm. is a problem and it's driving up these ridiculous averages, making people seem much more intelligent than they are. I know that sounds really, really horrible, but essentially it's creating a problem at the undergraduate level because now, again, with the, with any courses that are in the sciences or that you have to be patient focused and patient, you know, patient facing, you want to be able to trust the people who are coming into that profession as well, right? It's kind of scary that, how did we go from, you know, the general basic average for people getting into nursing was like 80% to averages that are 94% and higher? It seems a little bit inflated to me. Or maybe, you know, these gen, is it called Gen X? I don't know. I don't know what gen, generation it is now. But but like, are they that much more intelligent? And then again, like the other point that you said was even just the the cutoffs right now as they stand, like they are very high standards to get into nursing school, to get into medicine, to get into social work. The standards are high. And how do we make sure that we're getting the right people in? It's, it's a tricky question. And then even when you get in, like you said, clinical placements, how, how do we, how do we bridge that gap? How do we get to the point where it's like, okay, we know that there's a shortage in these various areas. How do we make sure that we have the right people? How do we make sure that we have the right number of people? How do we make sure that people are getting placed to actually be able to do their clinical work? Because right now, I think just recently they've started having some learners back, but it's 
it's kind of nowhere near where it was pre-pandemic levels. Yeah. And the other issue is that uh, hospitals are so short staffed that they literally don't have nurses to buddy up with uh, student nurses to be able to show them the ropes. And I, I think there's a common misconception among nursing students because a lot of times they feel that nurses don't want to teach them and they don't understand why because they're going to be there to help. But just to play devil's advocate, the flip side is when you are a nurse and you have a student, this is extra responsibility for you. So it's not just like you're going about your day and (laughs) someone's following behind you. You actually have to take the time and explain to them what you're doing and why and give them a chance to practice, right? So mentally, there's more on your plate, even though maybe at the end of that placement, you're going to have this person independently looking after patients. There is um, a lot of upfront work that's involved. And I think I've seen both sides, right? So I understand that as a student nurse, you might feel frustrated. But then on the other side, if you are already short-staffed and you're a nurse working on the unit, and now you have a student that you maybe didn't expect and you want to do a good job, that actually takes more work than you realize because of all the things I just mentioned. And then all of the other pressures that come with looking after patients and their families and unexpected things that come up, like it is, it is a lot. And I think that when you are buddied with a student nurse, you should be paid more than your 25 cents or 50 cents. I can't remember what it is per hour. <laughs> yeah, I was glad <laughs> like, that you got to that. <laughs> I think there needs to be more incentive to teaching student nurses like it can't just be 50 cents an hour like for that nobody's going to do it for the pay it's because they want to do it and we need to incentivize this a little bit better I think no I agree (laughs) with you 100% like I remember when we were educators and you know a nurse would be like let's be honest we had to like voluntold people to do this work and like you said I get both sides but again when you look at the double-edged sword when you're like okay this person is working with this learner there's that extra work and then we saw that you know they got an extra 25 cents on top of their pay like holy shit that's like the worst like we just It's just, it's just like, what are we doing in terms of, you know, making sure that people want to play a part in this role and actually help support students? Because, again, we see issues with bullying, incivility, and we shouldn't have to see those issues at all. Like, I'm not, I'm not making an excuse saying, okay, if they were paid more, they'd be less mean. No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that we need to incentivize these things a little bit better to make sure that, you know, everyone has a slice of the pie and that people are happy doing the work that they're intended to do in terms of trying to get more learners in. Like, I I don't know what the solution is right now. Like how, how do we get more clinical spaces? Like what is it that we have to share the space between, you know, social workers, um, PSWs that might be coming in physicians, uh, residents, how do we get more nurses in? Like, is it something that we should be reaching out to the government to be like, Hey, here's another solution to fix your problem. We need to, one, probably increase the number of, um, not applicants, but the number of people who can be accepted to a a nursing school. And then two, yeah, we need to open up the floodgates in terms of clinical opportunities. But then again, we also need need nurses who are ready and willing, who aren't leaving the bedside to be there to look after uh, nursing students, right? Well, not look after them, but preceptor them. Yeah, like I was really trying to rack my brain for some creative solutions. And I came up with a few, which 
maybe they're not the best, but they're just some ideas I had. So I did a course not too long ago to be certified as a trainer. And part of that course is we had actually paid actors come and play patients. So it was really cool because they did it really well. And if we needed them to redo a situation, they could, or we'd say, okay, do it again, but be more confused or be like, ask more questions. And they could actually adjust their approach to help us learn. And I've, I've been in situations at one of my other organizations where it was paid actors in person. And that was super helpful because in absence of the real thing, like the, the actors act like real people. They don't know what you're talking about. They get angry. They get confused. They need you to repeat things again. When you ask them for their symptoms, they're really vague, just like some people might be. And they, they forget things <laughs> right. like, oh, I don't remember what medication I took two days ago. Like that kind of thing is helpful. And I know it doesn't really address the hands-on part, but I think it can help with assessments. I know there's a huge interest for nurses to work in non-traditional roles so like remote nursing or they want to do things that are a bit more flexible so why not extend that to clinical placements like could we look at non-traditional settings like maybe outdoor summer camps vaccination centers clinical trials or even high fidelity simulation like those are things that we might need Mm -hmm. to look at home and community care And I think, like, just going back to what you said, Amy, all of this requires government incentives. We can't just put this on hospitals and schools to say, do more, do better, graduate more nurses. Like, there needs to be something else for them, I think, at the end of the day. We're arguing the same point. And I think this is where we we have to ask people to continue to have more political action in in regards to this. Because there's this huge trickle-down effect that if there's not enough nurses to take care of your loved ones, someone's going to suffer. Like at the end of the day, we we know that that's happening. We know that that's happening chronically now. And I think this is the other point that I kind of wanted to pull out. People are thinking that the nursing shortage started like during the pandemic. Uh, no. I think from the time I got into to nursing school, we were talking about nursing shortage in nursing school. And I bet you if we ask anybody who 30 years ago, they could probably tell us they were talking about nursing shortage in their schooling. So this is a chronic problem that we've been facing. And only the pandemic has like, you know, pulled back the veil on how terrible nursing staffing ratios and rates are. We need to do something different. We need governments who actually care about patients and families. This isn't even just about, okay, you know, just about a nurse. This is about making sure that we're delivering the best care that we say that we are doing. I don't think that, you know, I used to think that Canada, we're doing such a great job out here with our healthcare. I I don't know if I feel that way anymore. No, I agree. And like right now, actually, even before our podcast, a friend of mine, she had her baby last week and um, she ended up passing out a lot of blood at home and she's sitting in Emerge right now. She's been there for about five hours and she's been texting me back and forth. Like, what do I do? Because she's also breastfeeding. Right. And she's like, She's like, I'm feeling like I need to get home. And I'm like giving her all these tips from my perspective. So I think that unless you're really in the situation, you don't understand and you see how busy the nurses are. But until it actually affects you or someone you know, I think a lot of the public just doesn't see it. And like you said, nursing, we've been short for so many years. I think that our cries have just fallen on deaf ears until the pandemic where finally there's been some 
media interest in what we've been going through. So then we've been able to use that as a platform to advocate for what we need. And what we need is better retention and recruitment strategies and really safer workload and better pay. I mean, I think the other point is like, let's talk about staffing ratios because some some people might that are listening have no idea what that might look like. And you know what, you and I have been very, very fortunate because when we were working as nurses, our staffing ratio, when I was a labor and delivery nurse, it was one to one. I remember being aghast when they were just like, oh, you might have to have another laboring patient. I was like, me, one more patient. <laughs> but we were very fortunate because most uh, most of our colleagues had at least, you know, four patients. And I think when we went to like medicine and other areas, the ratios were way higher. I think it was like one to seven, one to eight, sometimes in really crappy situations, like, you know, more than that. Right. And I think that we've been, like I said, we've been fortunate. We we take for granted how difficult it is to have a workload of one to eight patients. And I don't think most people know what that looks like, but I'm going to try to paint a picture from my nursing school days in terms of how difficult it was. And this is when I was a nursing student dealing with eight patients. I remember I barely had enough time to actually have like a full five minute conversation because it was like, all right, I got in, I get my report at 7.30 and the report always used to take like half an hour. I remember, I don't know, I don't think they do this anymore, where you would uh, go into the report room no. and you'd play a, a tape recorder. <laughs> do, you, do you remember that? Old school tape, like literally hit record. <laughs> yeah. You literally, yeah, it was like a, it was like an eight track. No, it wasn't it was, eight track. It was like a tape and you like hit it. <laughs> yeah. Oh yes, I remember you that. It, you press play. And then you'd have to sit through and listen to like like all the different reports. Like you're waiting to hear your patient's room number and then you'd like write down, you know, all the stuff that you need to know. So by that time you were done listening, it's like eight o'clock and you're like, oh, you got eight o'clock meds for everybody. So you're running around. Oh my God, where's the, where's the medication cart? You're, you're, you're grabbing your meds. You're doing things that you're not supposed to because, you know, you're supposed to go do take one med next patient, one bed, next patient. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're, we're cutting those rules because they don't work very well and you're getting amalgamation of meds for patients. You know how dangerous that could be. And you're kind of like checking the armband, you're giving the med, you're checking the armband, you're giving the med. And by the time you finished your med pass, it was like, oh, you, people still need to get up or that person needs to be toileted or, you know, you forgot to toilet that person. Now they've, they've had like, they've had a, an incident to, and you have to deal with that. And it's just like, it's literally one thing after the other. You can't even get to use your full assessment skills to do the work that you need to do to make sure that that patient's receiving all the care that they should get. And I just remember being exhausted. I felt like I was running around with, you know, my head cut off like I was a chicken and just going from room to room to room to room. And, you know, maybe you'd get a couple moments where you can sit and talk to the patient. But most of the time, like, you know, the chargers would be like, what are you doing? Why are you in the room for so long? You're like, holy crap. Like, I'm. You didn't even get to documentation, right? So at some point, you got you to sit and write down everything you've done. But just to backtrack, um, so when I worked on postpartum, which is where I worked for most of my career, we did have up to eight patients. And if you had twins, then that that adds another layer into the mix, right? So you've got twins in the same room. You really have to make sure you have the yep. right baby. Usually twins are small. You have to do your uh, blood sugar checks. You have to make sure they're eating. 
So I remember one shift, I had four moms and four babies, but then actually one of them was triplets. So then that's four, eight, so (laughs) 10 patients. Okay. And that woman was demanding. Okay. Like I, you know, that's a whole other issue. Then you have to deal with anxious parents and sometimes their, their concerns are valid. Right. And so you, you just need to keep your cool. But for anyone that hasn't worked in healthcare or nursing before, I felt like sometimes I was a waitress, like literally I'm going from one room to another, to another, my phones. So every time I'm in a room, someone else from another room is calling me and I'm like, okay, I'll be right there. Hang up, finish what I have to do. Go to the next room. I get called from someone else while I'm helping that person. And it just, went on and on and on all day yep and it just like like you're saying Sarah like although we didn't even get to the charting like you said like we actually I remember doing paper dare ch- charting so I didn't even know people I started are, with like, paper charting yeah that's when you had the like the lines you wrote your d-a-r and you wrote like this is what I did. This is the response. This is the action. And you wrote, we'll continue to monitor because that was the last line you always had to write when you were documenting. And, you know, yes, they have computers, but it doesn't, I honestly don't know how much faster people get. It's with, not faster. With that technology. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, it's, it's, people don't realize how hard it is to do that. And we haven't even thrown in a complex patient. We haven't thrown in a code blue or a code pink. We haven't thrown in someone who's decompensating or crashing. People don't realize how difficult it is because we don't talk about it. We don't say that this is really, really bad. You know, we talk, we, we submit those unsafe work forms and saying, you know, we shove them under management's door slam the door we're really angry about it but we don't talk about how unsafe it is to actually have that type of workload and there are actually other places there's some places actually in the states out in california they have staffing ratios where they cap the amount of patients that any one person can have and then they'd have to like call in an additional person for for that support and they have break nurses where they have a nurse who's just on shift to actually go and relieve nurses so they can they can pee they can eat, they can do things that are like normal, right? But who do we need to talk to? Who do we need to lobby? Who do we need to to fight with? Or why should we have to fight with to say that, you know, we want the best healthcare outcomes, but the government is really hindering that right at this point. Yeah, yeah. And it's a tough thing to deal for with. sure. And and just going back to recruitment and retention, I think that there is a huge issue with even just underutilizing nurses. So we have a lot of internationally educated nurses who are all trying to get licensed with the college and it's so difficult. And where we are, at least, they're actually trying to advertise that internationally trained nurses work as personal support workers or what do you call them in the States? CNAs. So that's really demoralizing and it's so underutilizing the skills that they have, but that's what they're trying to do right now. And for nurses that are trying to return to the bedside, they're making it extremely difficult. I spoke to a nurse um, earlier in the pandemic who wanted to go back to the bedside. She'd been working in leadership for, I think, maybe five years, and she said she couldn't get an interview anywhere because they wanted someone who had recent nursing experience, meaning, you know, hands-on less than five years ago. And she actually had to like go back and take courses and never mind nurses like you and I, I know you tried to um, apply to do vaccinations and you didn't even get a call back. Nope. I, it's crazy. So just again, back to the bureaucracy, like I'm sure you were needed, but somehow they didn't call you for some reason. 
and I know that they hate this conversation and there was enough drama on Twitter about it. Where it was like, you know, nurses were applying for these roles and they were hiring physicians that were making like how much 10 more? times and more. It's just, it, it was just crazy because it's just like, okay, so, you know, there are people out there that are willing to work, not say that they do the work cheaper, but I guess technically it is. And they weren't called upon. Like it's, it just, it was just really, really bizarre. And I just, I really wonder like, what, what are we doing here? What are we, what is our end goal in terms of, you know, we talk about accreditation. We talk about patient safety. You hear that. It's like, it's like a bell ringer, right? It's the key word, patient safety, patient safety, health outcomes, but we aren't keeping our patients any safer by doing what we're doing and continuing the status quo and seeing how cripplingly bad it has become with COVID-19. We need to do something different and we need to look at those strategies like you mentioned. I think if we don't look at the, if we don't change things, it's only going to get worse. And I think that, you know, nurses are getting louder and I think that's exactly what they should be doing. And I think that I hope more and more people will continue to come out and back us and back other and just stand up and say, hey, no, we can't we can't accept this because we want we want better for the profession. We want better for we actually want better for our patients and families out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that for those of us that are in leadership, it's really about helping nurses feel empowered and in control of their jobs. So there's such a huge culture of fear and silencing in nursing that I think we need to celebrate things rather than penalizing. So I often think about, Mm -hmm. you know, we talked about the attendance support program where you get penalized essentially for calling in sick too much. Why not celebrate the nurses who haven't been sick for, you know, I don't know how long, like six months or a year, rather than penalizing the ones that are sick. And often it's for a legitimate reason. Let's not even, let's yeah. not do that. Let's make people want to come to work. And when they call in sick, we we trust that they are truly sick and we don't question it and we don't penalize and we don't count beans. And we just say, okay, you know, get better, come back when you're healthy. I agree with you. And I think the other thing that people might be saying to us is like, why can't you go on strike? Why can't you just walk out? Could you imagine if nurses just left like that? That that is something that can't happen. Right. But there are places where nurses are going to strike. And for example, I don't know if anybody's heard of Kaiser Permanente. So there's actually this November 15th. Um, if the contract negotiations with the health network don't improve, over 30,000 Kaiser Permanente workers plan on actually going on strike. And they're actually fighting a proposal um, from Kaiser that will cut their pay for future hires. So Kaiser's initial offer would be would have cut wages for future hires between 26 to 39%. Like, how can people do this after what they've seen nurses have gone through through this pandemic? How can they sit and say we want to cut wages. It's, it's insane. That should be illegal. Like, like 26 to 39%, that's almost 40%. So you're saying that a nurse that has already been hired versus a new nurse should be making 40% less. I I don't even know how that computes. I thought that's, I thought this was an error. The first time I read it, I thought it was (laughs) 2.6 to 3.9%, which we would also be shocked about, but this is like 10 times more. No. And again, they were saying like Kaiser workers believe in the two tiered wage system would would deepen existing staffing crises at the Netflix facilities and also put more patients at harm by making it 
by by doing this and then they won't be able to recruit and retain um su- successful and skilled workers like it's un- it's insane it's and it's also it's also funny because I guess you and I can both think of people who've made money over the pandemic that have made 26 to 39% more than other than the nurses working the front line. This is insane. Like, why is it that, you know, CEOs, executives, whatever, they can throw some extra money into their pockets and the people at the front line are the ones that get to suffer. It's not, it's not fair. It's not right. We need to put the money into the resources, if we're saying that we want people to be safe, we want patients and families to be safe, we want to see health equity, put the money where it should belong and put it in healthcare. Put it with people who are working on the front lines day in and day out looking after your families. Don't put it in the CEO's pockets. Forget that. Right. It's crazy. Right. And I also want to point out in this article that Kaiser made more than $10 billion during the pandemic. So you cannot tell me that there was not enough money to go around, that this really needed to happen. We should check Kaiser. We should check that CEO. I bet you he made he or she made some good cheddar during the pandemic and has a nice bonus coming. Well, it does say that in 2019, the outgoing CEO and his retirement package came to 35 million if that's any indication wow see this is the you see it's like it's not even a slippery slope at that point right it's just like glaring in your face that people who are in power that have money that are in those positions of privilege they just don't care they're not sharing the wealth. They're not sharing the power. Think about thir- that thirty-five million spread across all the. Let let's say there was like a Christmas bonus, and instead of taking that retirement package, he gave that amount back to all of the employees. Like that would be so much money per person. How many nurses could they hire for thirty-five million? At, at least thirty. At least thirty-five thousand, I would say. Even if we were to say, okay, you know, each nurse makes sixty-five to seventy thousand to start. That's like, we're doubling your money there, right? And I think people just, healthcare is turning into this for-profit business for people to put into their monies and, sorry, to put into their pockets. And it's it's a crying shame seeing what's happening to people and the healthcare. We're, we're seeing, you know, poverty rates going up. The other thing that we're seeing too is, um, I saw a headline just recently that like with the opioid crisis, they're seeing like huge rates of of overdose. It's like we need people boots on the ground to be out there to help people and help prevent these things from occurring. But you know, this guy gets to put $35 million in his pocket. Yeah, like I mean, at the end of the day, people need to do the right thing. We need to again incentivize the right behavior. We need to put money where it belongs. If we believe that money should be in healthcare, then put it with the frontline workers, the people that are doing the hard work that are breaking their backs every day. We can't keep doing this um, corporate care, I I, I should call it. Yeah. And we really need to promote leaders that are embodying the characteristics we want to see. So I feel like, I don't know, I don't know why this is, but I feel like people that are in it for themselves, they kind of they play the game and they align themselves with the right people and they move up, not because they're doing a good job, but because they've aligned themselves with the right people. And the people that actually do want to do a good job get stepped on and they either don't yeah. move up or they end up leaving for somewhere else because they want to be in an environment that's more supportive of doing the right thing. So I, I'm not sure what to do about that, but I think we kind of see that way more often than we would like. Yeah. At the end of the day, I think we're asking people who are listening 
nursing students, nurses, physician allies, whomever that that supports nurses to to really start lobbying our governments to do better. And, you know, when when there are rallies, like, for example, Sarah and I are going to a rally this weekend. Oh, my gosh, Sarah, it's your first rally. What are you going to do to support us, to stand behind us, to say that, you know, enough is enough. We want to put patients and families first. That's what we got into healthcare for. That's what we need to continue to push for. So, you know, when you hear about these things, sign those petitions, march with the nurses, um, you know, take that time to ask more questions and to send that email to the political leader or to tweet at them or whatever the case may be. But we've got to do better. We've got to do better for nursing. We got to do better for our patients and families. Absolutely. And if you're not on social media and you want to be more active, here's your chance. You know, Social media is not always a bad thing if you don't have it, but you want to get more involved and you're not sure how, I would highly recommend that you, you know, get on Twitter, get on Facebook, get on any platform and find a way to support people that way. It's, it's so much more powerful than you realize. I agree. Hire a nurse and uh, have better hiring practices and let's get some more nurses into school. And you know what I have to say? To anybody out there who wants to be a nurse, it's a good profession. It's a great profession. There's some work that needs to be done, but um, if we do it together, we can we can make it a a much more rewarding and a better profession every single day.